This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Maggie Paxson, author of The Plateau. When a stranger comes, you're not, you don't define them by some special category. Like you don't, you don't first see them as, as an example of a certain category. This is that person from that country, this religion, that political group. You see them as a human being. listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. My guest today is Maggie Paxson, author of The Plateau, published by Riverhead Books. One review said this about the book. The Plateau is an elegant, intensive study that grapples with an enormous idea, how to be good. Paxson is a writer, anthropologist, and performer. She is also the author of Soloyovo, The Story of Memory in a Russian Village. Fluent in Russian and French, she has worked in rural communities in northern Russia, the Caucasus, and France. Joining me to talk about The Plateau is Maggie Paxson. Welcome to the program. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. The Plateau brings into focus a remote area of France. It's called the Plateau Vivre Lignon, which we'll call the Plateau in this discussion. And it provided refuge to families, particularly children, during World War II. And you discovered that it's an area that is continuing to give refuge to displaced people from around the world. So can you describe this place in France? Yeah, so this is a tiny, tiny little plateau in south-central France that's part of a large, larger plateau called Massif Central. That's kind of important because it's kind of high up and hard to get to. And it so happens that in this region of France, which is really found on the border between two departements, departments called Haute-Loire, and Ardèche, right on that little border in this plateau, during the Second World War, it was a place of shelter for all kinds of refugees who were fleeing from all kinds of places for all kinds of reasons. It was hard to get to. So people who were there, who landed there, were relatively safe. It was sort of wooded and stony and um, inaccessible, relatively inaccessible. So it's found in that sort of area. And the first things that I learned about this place were those sort of uh, episodes and sort of extended periods of rescue during the Second World War. But not long after I started looking at this place, I learned that in this area, this tiny remote area of France, peoples had been sheltered throughout history in punctuated times, sort of during the religion wars, again, Protestants and Catholics, after the French Revolution, for various episodes in the 19th century, in the various wars of the, of the early 19th century, and then during the Second, Second World War. I also learned that they were then, as you said, today sheltering some peoples. And so it was a remarkable story. And I, when I learned about this story years ago, as an anthropologist, I thought, I want to look at a case like this, where something really different has happened. 
a case where people are good to the vulnerable outsiders and do it for a long period of time and do it at great risk to themselves. And we'll remind listeners that you are an anthropologist. So one day you're a social scientist and you had a history of studying memory. You've spent time in Russia, the Caucasus. And then you had to make a decision about doing something a little bit different. And you wanted to study peace. So can you connect how your own personal transition happened as you were looking at this? Yes, there was this kind of crisis that I was having and a moment that I was learning myself that is what I'm doing enough. So I was an anthrop- I am an anthropologist. I guess you, you can't lose that. <laughs> it's like I, I have a PhD in anthropology. I had studied in Russia. Um, I'd done fieldwork in this teeny, teeny, tiny village in the sort of really sort of the backwoods of Russia. I would talk to people and listen to people mostly who had lived, like literally had lived the Russian Revolution, the civil war that followed it, all of the kind of crisis of the 1920s there, collectivization, forced collectivization, famine, the Second World War, famine again, political upheaval, political sort of dictatorial, authoritarian kind of punishment than regular kinds of violence. I had heard stories that would make old women weep talking to me over and over again. And it was my honor to hear these stories. I I felt that by listening, by really hearing, by taking in what their lives had been, I was I was doing what I could. You spend some time talking about the process of field work, both earlier in your career and then when you spent time in the plateau. And I found it really interesting to hear your take on how you, how you were um, taught to do field work, which is to spend a great deal of time, experience all of the seasons, and be part of the habits of the locals. So you did take that training into the plateau. There were moments when you admit, I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. You're walking in forest. You're walking on train tracks. You're absorbing all of the, the, the people and the places just to kind of get oriented. I'd like to know, when, when did you know this would become a book? That's a really good question. I mean, I think when I set out to go there, I, I think I already knew that I didn't want to write a book like my first book that was an academic book for, for academic. But it quickly became clear that this was, a, this was a different kind of story. And yes, the bigness of the questions were kind of demanding a lot of thinking, a lot of searching. And, you know, I loved that walking. I loved getting lost. I loved the thinking of it. I needed it. It was like I was craving the quiet. You know, those moments in life where all you hear is like the birds, you know, or the leaves. Like, that was very, and it kind of comes in and out as a theme in the book in a way because I, you know, I, I feel like those, 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 those lulls sort of tie the kind of reflection that's in the book. But I think I continued on. There were these contemporary Asylum seekers living there, some of them were from the territory of the former Soviet Union. They were from Russia and the North Caucasus, where I had been in Russia. I was getting close to them. You see in the course of the book that changes at a certain point. I'm like, I give up. (laughs) I'm not going to do these interviews anymore like I had done before. 
So what were the what were some of the markers? What were some of the elements that that came to you as you were trying to figure out why is this place so good? I, you know, I decided at a certain point I didn't want to interview people. I didn't want to ask questions. I wanted to watch how people were. And I wanted to get to love them, you know, because I kind of was falling in love with all of them, too. And just watch how things unfolded. And and in fact, what I started seeing in people was this ability to take in people in, in more intimate ways than we might know how to do. Um, they knew how things that might be seem really simple, like how to greet a stranger on the street, you know, with an open face as opposed to a kind of guarded, closed face. Yeah. And how to take them into their home and how to invite them over and how, in certain cases, to invite them to stay with them. And how, in other cases, to, you know, when, when they didn't get their status, to kind of give them some resources and help them get out. And it's not a singular act, as you describe in the book. It's not a singular act. It is a commitment. I think, I think you use the term, it's more of a unfold, unfolding, a dynamic unfolding. But it, and as what you were just describing is that once you immerse yourself with a group of people in need, you don't really want to separate yourself. You're already connected. So they had a history of bringing people in, treating them in a really beautiful, humane way. And that's never left the community. Yeah, it's I, I talk about that in the book. In the in the very beginning, one of the things that I do know how to study as an anthropologist is these habits. You know, habits so, come through in the book yeah. a lot. Yeah, talk about habits. Well, knowing how to do something, like you learn how to do it. So, you know, it is actually my belief that they have a set of habits on how to treat strangers, right? How to treat people that they don't know. And one of those habits is when a stranger comes, you're not you don't define them by some special category. Like you don't you don't first see them as, as an example of a certain category. This is that person from that country, this religion, that political group. You see them as a human being first. This is a, actually, it looks like it could be biblical. And it is maybe, probably is. But it's also social, you know, you, that you see a person as a human and not just as an example of a thing. And they do that to this day. They have this habit and they have other habits too. One thing that came through in the book, and we should be clear that there are so many asylum seekers and mm -hmm. refugees throughout the country of France, and you talk about these centers, they're called CADA. Well, C-A-D-E yeah. is the acronym. Yeah. I'll let you say the, the full name in French. So there are these CADA refugee centers in France, but you sort of, I sort of got the impression that the one that exists in the plateau strives to be different. It strives, it strives to do more than is officially required. So I wonder if you could talk about that. And to this day, how are refugees finding out about the plateau? How do they get there? I mean, some of that's technical. So these centers, uh, Centre d'accueil pour demandeurs d'asile, so welcoming centers for asylum seekers, there, there are many of these in France. But yes, this one, the director who sort of, who sort of created this particular center, really he did decide. He knew something he told me. He knew something about the history of this place. And he thought maybe he could do something a little bit different. And it was something as simple as like, in a lot of these places, people are living in what are, in effect, barracks, sort of open barracks where you get a cot, there's that. Or and you, you have no, no space of your own for your, your intimacy, your privacy. 
Here, people, the families, there were a small number of families, but they would get their own little apartment with a door that they could lock and a key that was theirs. And to say that, you know, basically these people had lived incredible and traumatic things um, in their own flight. And that is a huge difference to have your privacy, where you can have your time with your family in dignity. These people would find their way to various kadas through the, the sort of how the networks work in France. So like, like all asylum seekers in the world, you get into the country, you give yourself up to police, you say, I'm seeking asylum, and then a process sets in motion. And some of these people who, who could figure out how to do it were able to get into the Kada system. And in that way, they would be assigned depending on what room there was and what region they were in. And so I would think that, you know, that would be a really, be really lucky. <laughs> You're to get in lucky there. if you get assigned yeah. to the plateau. And what you described says so much about the, the towns and the villages that apartments and housing is offered to refugees, because there are so many places I can think in the United States would find it very threatening to have refugees living right next door to them. But that is not a concern in this place. It is part of the culture. It is part of the welcoming culture is what you found. Yeah, I so mean, that, that seems exceptional to me. It was really beautiful to watch, actually. I mean, and it's people are people like people. It is right. It's not right to put people on pedestals. And it is, I think, better to talk about like habits and things like that. But I could see how like, again, these open faces, like somebody that the guy would come to read the meter and he would, you know, he didn't speak. He wouldn't speak Russian. I got to translate. Actually, that was one of my one of my things that I started one of doing. Those full circle yeah. moments that you had <laughs> yes. from living in, which is which is great for people who pick up this book and please do. And I want to remind everyone we're talking to Maggie Paxson, the author of The Plateau. And so that's something that happens. You had spent time in Russian speaking areas. You find yourself doing research in France, and then there are people that need the translation, and you just happen to find yourself in these situations. So you got into the real, real intimate moments of their lives. I mean, even translating medical yeah. um, issues, oh which is... <laughs> which I do, for the record, I do not ha- know how to do. I, I, I finally to- I told myself, I was like, I'd look words up. Like, uh, you know, some of these people would come in with a med- set of medical conditions, like a list as long as your arm. And I would look stuff up. And But I'm not a, a translator. I don't have those technical skills, but I just told myself, like, I'm better than nothing. And I was better than nothing. And like, we would have these moments where... You know, it would be Armenian to Russian, Russian to French. Then, then it that would go to the social worker, and then the social worker would go back to you know, back to, into French, French to Russian, Russian to Armenian, so that the patient could understand what was going on. When you were in the plateau, um, and you you touched upon this a moment ago, that there were there there are people from different religions, different languages. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think about the concept of being good or being moral, they think about a religious connection. And you do talk about this later in the book. And there was, there was an observation that struck me. I'll just read it. I believe in science, but I don't want to live in a world that can't reach deep down into its first principles and find the hallowed space of things that are, to us, beautiful. And then a bit later you say... Science shows how to make sense of terror and beauty, but it flattens it a bit. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your impression of 
the importance of religion when it comes to measuring a person's goodness. The question is, what does religion have to do with being good? Does it have anything to do with being good? And I think it can have everything to do with being good or nothing, <laughs> both of those things, because I think, in fact, in my experience, and I've lived in different parts of the world, and I've been exposed to a lot of different kinds of people, all religions that I know of have at their core the precisely the same principle, which is to teach us how to love one another. I don't know a religion that doesn't teach that, that doesn't offer that as it's at its core. For me, that kind of oneness of message, it binds us all. To the extent, and this is how I actually really do believe this, to the extent that religions offer that up and that we take that on, religion has everything to do with being good. But to the extent that religions, when we turn them into other things, when they turn them, when we tie them to the nation or the ethnic group or the, that is, or power, that is a great distraction from that core central message of what they all share. So. I, there's at one point in the book I say, you know, sometimes religion makes us better than what we would be without it, and sometimes it makes us worse. So I think, you know, religion, when it has to do with that, it is transformative. It allows us, it, 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 there is almost this kind of magical power that it has in effect to take, you know, the face of a stranger, a category, and turn that face, like an alchemy, into the friend. It has that power. Do we need religion to do that? I don't think we need religion to do that. If we're living by that principle, it, that, that is enough to animate that face of a stranger with humanity. But So religion can do it, and it might not do it. There's so much sadness and beauty in this book, and, and you, you, it's just a striking story that I've, I've never read a book quite like this. And with all of the migration issues happening in the world today, and you've spent years studying this, if someone's thinking to themselves, am I a good person? Am I a moral person? And will I, will I do the right thing at the right time? Is there a personal litmus test for how we evaluate our own goodness? I'm, I'm using air quotes as I say that. It's a moving target, I would say. I mean, it, every moment of our lives, in a way, is a chance to, you know, we, we don't talk about, we, we're, not, we're not one thing. We are many things. We are capable of good and bad. And, and I think for me, as I say, I, I sort of, it's exhilarating and terrifying to realize that, that we, I am capable of both of those things. And so in a way, learning to invest moments that we live with meaning and weight, like that I think is the trick. That's the litmus test in a given moment. And in the aggregate, we can decide, you know, did I leave that person crying when they were crying? Or was I able to comfort them? Was I able to bring some tenderness into this space or not? Was I able to sh share what I had or didn't I? You know, I, I, this thought kept running through my head over and over again as I wrote. It's like, you know, we think history, it's like it announces itself. Like you look at back at the Holocaust and you're like, how come those people did that, those horrible things? But we think that history announces itself and says, you are living in terrible times. You better watch out because you will be judged for what you do right now, today. But it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. So, I mean, I think the little things in life have to be made large for us in a way. 
and the consequences of those small actions to be sort of to be seen as the the stuff of goodness. In a way, it's all about like finding, picking your North Star, your true North, and living by it as best you can. And when you get off track, going back on it. And in this plateau over time, I would see that, you know, that that it returns again and again, like a ship to its true North, right? Doesn't mean everything everybody does there is great, but it returns to that. It knows what North is. And I think as an individual, having a sense of what is the true North. So maybe it's a habit and maybe it is a compass. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what comes through yeah. in the plateau. Well, as I mentioned before, I've never really read a book quite like this. It's been described as history, social science, memoir, a kind of a, a book of observation. How how do you characterize it? When you pitched it to a publisher, how, how do you characterize this book? I really, I'm so grateful for my editor, Becky Salatan at Riverhead Books, because I think when I proposed it, it was as strange as it ended up being. You know, it wasn't formed yet, but it had all these elements to it even then. And she was able to sort of see on the inside of it and understand that this is going to be, a, I think, I mean, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but like this is going to be a, an interesting ride. It, I really, I think genre-wise, you could say it's creative nonfiction or narrative nonfiction or something like that. In my head, I started calling it Instead of magical realism, I started calling it real magicalism mm, in a way I because like <laughs> there is this sort of big, fat question that was sort of around me all the time and things kept appearing and things kept being strange and things kept being wonderful and things kept being like it, it was as though I said this to my husband, like, you know, the universe is sort of talking and I'm supposed to transcribe it. And that's real magicalism. I mean, that's nonsense, but it, it did kind of feel that way. Um, and I'm very grateful that I got to write this book. I mean, I don't know what genre it is. Maybe someone will tell me. But it, it is bound to a big question, I think. And that question determined the structure and the form that, that, that the book took. You've been on tour for the past uh, few weeks, and readers have had a chance to read it, absorb it. Has anything surprised you? Have any reactions from readers surprised you? It, it isn't totally surprised because I think it could be expected, but like different readers have read it from very different angles. So some people have taken in the historical part. Uh, some people have taken the, the contemporary story in. Some of people have landed on that question, what does it mean to be good? And they're, they've really landed there. Um, and so sort of the fact that it's like this prism and that people read it in very, very different ways, that's been interesting. After... <laughs> After tackling something like this, after writing a book like this, and watching, and you know, watching and reading about your evolution in life and professionally, do you know what you'll work on next? Will you take a break, or will you kind of you do you envision working in another, another medium, another genre? What what's next for, for you? <laughs> I think writing is going to take a little break. I mean, I finally feel like. I, I think I used up all the words <laughs> for the time being. I had a bunch, and I've used them up, and I assume that they will come back. More will come back, but I am thinking about the future. I mean, um, readers will know because of a couple of little bar parts of the book that I am a singer as well as being um, as well as, as writing this stuff. I, I sing in a big band, Doc Scantlin and his Imperial Palms Orchestra. I've always been attracted to music from that period. It actually is the period of music that animates 
this the history part of this book. Yeah, that's a that's a fitting. It is fitting time period for the book. So literally, I would be in the Holocaust Museum during the day. You know, weeping into my into my computer, and then at night I would put on sequins and fe- like literally sequins and feather costumes and be singing like Skylark and Over the Rainbow and. But also in the course of the book, I found it very, very helpful for me to be able to one by one sort of use these songs as kind of a way through. I have one last question for you. And and because you're an anthropologist and you've studied all over the world, I would like to know if there is a book you love to recommend that maybe no one has ever heard of. <laughs> there are all these important books like I love Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince, and he, I don't know if no one's heard of Wind, Sand, and Stars. They probably have heard of his other book, Wind, Sand, and Stars. is a great kind of introduction to, you know, adult audiences in the United States. I love him very much. Um, And I actually, from the very beginning, I thought I wanted to learn from him, like I wanted to learn from uh, Primo Levi and his The Reawakening, uh, his memoir after surviving Auschwitz. You know, in a, on a lighter note, there is Dan Sparebear's Rethinking Symbolism, which was a transformative book for me when I was studying anthropology. And it really kind of changed how I looked at uh, people's, how, how they make meaning and make relevance for each other. That's a book that probably not many people have heard of, but it was really, really important. Um, I have not gone back to the Feynman lectures in a very, very long time, Richard Feynman, the physicist. And... Those are amazing, amazing, um, wonderful, grounded lectures. Well, these are wonderful recommendations. I'll remind everybody again, this is Maggie Paxson. Her book is The Plateau, published by Riverhead, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. She's been on book tour in the U.S., and you can find this beautiful book, The Plateau, anywhere books are sold. Thank you so much, Maggie, for coming to the program today. Thank you, Lori. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for everybody to list, for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com.